I was thinking we could just talk about Illich, which is funny. I didn't even know how to say his name. I thought it was like Eilich or something. Yeah. I heard yeah. you say it on your conversation with Carl Mitchell, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny because I usually would say uh, Ivan and then, you know, heard Carl. Then subsequent, I talked to a few other folks and, and Yvonne is the preferred rendering of that. So... Yeah, understood. I figured we should talk about just the word conviviality because we've been talking about like living within bounds and what that means to Illich. Right. And I think one of the things that I've appreciated reading through Tools for Conviviality, and I skimmed it just again this morning, you know, getting ready to, to talk to you about Illich, are these two sides of one coin for him. And this sort of gets at the level of the ultimate values that I think are sort of driving although I don't think he would have liked the language of values necessarily, right? but these, these ultimate goods that are driving his writing, his theorizing, and how much of it ends up being about, on the one hand, a kind of freedom for the individual, a kind of autonomy. And I think if we just left it at that, right? So there are these snippets of Village's writing, I think, which someone with libertarian tendencies might sort of pick up and say, ah, yeah, this, this makes sense to me. This is what I'm talking about. And and I don't want to caricature the libertarian mindset necessarily here, but that there are these passages that highlight our ability to just care for ourselves, right? To assume responsibility for ourselves. This is part of Ilch's critique of the medical profession is that we lost sight of how to just be responsible for our own health, right? Or even to be able to declare ourselves sick. But now are you really sick, right? Do you have the doctor's note? Do you have the diagnosis? So we lose control over aspects of our own living and and that control is handed over to different professions or institutions it's outsourced yeah right we're de-skilled as it were i don't think that's a word that that illich uses but we are de-skilled not in a particular kind of technical skill making widgets for the factory or whatever but in some aspect of being human right of living as a human being in the fullness of our sort of moral uh, integrity and so that's one aspect but the other side of that coin that i think illich always joins together is living also in mutual interdependence right so it's not just that i learn to take care of myself in this radically individual manner it's that I do so in the context of social interdependence, right? So that there are friends and family and neighbors that I rely on. I think it's in, in either tools or de-schooling that, that he talks about how one of the threats of modern tools and modern institutions is that they teach us to depend upon the products that they offer or the services they render instead of our neighbor, instead of another person, right? Another human being. So we, we lose the capacity to not just take responsibility for ourselves, but to care for one another in this context. And so I think at one level, you know, the convivial society is a society that enables individuals to have a, a degree of, of freedom and autonomy to be self-directed, we might say, especially in their work, but then also to learn to depend upon one another. Right, to learn to turn towards each other rather than towards an institution or a professional for support in, in the work of living, right, and the caring of our lives together. So that's why he has a critique against like experts. Also, I guess 
related to like industrialization of like commodifying everything mm-hmm. into like products and, and everything's about products. And yeah. And services. I think earlier in the 70s, when the talk of post-industrial society is ramping up and we're moving to, to what we think of as a service economy. And the critique of schooling, you know, what I love about Illich, you know, there are lots of critics of modernity, but very few of them sort of take on schooling and medicine, which, mm. you know, I think the majority of people would sort of agree these are the great boons of Western society. And, and Illich says, no, not exactly, at least not past a certain threshold, right? And I should say, too, most of my professional life has been teaching in schools, right? So I, I'm not by any means, you know, anti teachers. But I think that Illich's point about what he would think of as schooling, not just learning, because of course he he understands we have to learn. The question is whether the institution of schooling empowers us in, in the way that it claims to. And then he also begins to note, you know, the diminishing returns in universal education, not just in public schools, but in the ideal of of universal education and the diminishing returns that begin to be perceived in the 1970s. And he talks about the various remedies, which sound very familiar, right? On, on one hand, sort of independent or free schools or the deployment of technology. And so these, the public schools, the independent schools, and, and then the, the arrival of technology uh, to facilitate learning. For him, all three of them still take for granted the basic institutional structure of education that is professionalized, where you are put through a sort of an age-based curriculum. And and part of Illich's critiques is that you are made dependent upon a need that is created by the institution for its own sake. So before the institution of K through 12 schooling, there was no such thing as a high school dropout, right? Your social station was not going to be determined by whether you completed 12 consecutive years of professionalized schooling, right? Illich says in in tools, you know, that one thing that schooling does for you is it tells you exactly where you fail to complete the program, you know, exactly at which point you fail to go on to the next step. I know I'm ABD, right? That's my status, right? That's where I, I fell out. I dropped out, right? And so, someone who may be perfectly capable for a job back when a high school degree was sort of the the basic requirement, right? Now it's not even an undergraduate right now in some places. The default is that you have an MA. It it just extends forever, right? You just keep adding because the value of having a high school diploma is less relevant when everybody has one. And the value of having an undergrad is less relevant, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it perpetuates itself indefinitely. Again, you create a need for something that only the institution can provide for you and you become dependent on that institution. Uh, Right. So there are various ways to become capable, right? There are various ways to learn. Illich also says that most learning doesn't happen through teaching. I don't know if there's any way to quantify this, right? But I think he's onto something, right? If we think about how we learn to do most things in life, we may not necessarily have been taught those things. And we also tend to recognize that most of the things we were taught, as far as content anyway, we tend to forget, you know, a day after the oh, yeah. test, right? You know, and so he's on to something. He, he recognizes that there are various ways in which we can facilitate learning that don't require the institution of the modern Western school, mm-hmm. which for his part generally just created dependencies mm-hmm. that were unnecessary and counterproductive. Was it credentialism? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that is its own escalation. Right. Hmm. So 
Yes, I forget where we started down this trail, but that is also one of the, the targets that Illich has in, in view here is that we learn to, to depend on institutions instead of our, our neighbor, right? Just as a collective word for those around us, our, our friends, our family, our community. So how do you merge like the individual thing and the community aspect? Right. And I think Illich holds those two together, right? And, and we do a bad job of that. You know, we tend to either swerve towards a kind of radical individualism where we just sort of take care of ourselves and we, we're self-made and we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, yeah. and we have that kind of strand. And then maybe we have a, a kind of collectivist strand where the individual exists for the sake of the collective, right? And I think Illich manages to recognize that they exist in their best form only to the degree that they exist together, right? So that's, I think, a, a really valuable strand in, in Illich's work. And a lot of that, I think, towards the end of his career, increasingly gets tied up with the idea of friendship uh, and hospitality. And one of the things I've been reading uh, lately is about the, the crucial role that a certain interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan played in his thinking. Maybe we should mention it for those who don't know, Illich was a Roman Catholic priest, and he fell he got into a bit of trouble with the hierarchy in the late 60s. And he, he never ceased being a priest, but, but he did cease practicing the, the office of priest in an official capacity. And it was sort of his obedience, as it were, to the church at the end of the day. So there is a, a theological strand to Illich's thinking, although it's not immediately evident in a lot of his best-known work. But the, the parable of the Good Samaritan was extremely important to him, and it, it kind of captured this notion of the importance of recognizing in the other uh, a neighbor to be cared for. Right? And he, he makes the point that we tend to think about the parable as being about you know, what we ought to do, when it really is an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Right? And for him, it's just that moment of grace in which you recognize that, that even your enemy can be your neighbor. Right? The, the, the person who your society defines as somebody that is entirely other, and, and in fact, an enemy to you, in that moment of humane um, encounter, right? We, we can recognize them as our neighbor and be hospitable to them and recognize their humanity, et cetera, et cetera. And that can only happen on a certain scale, you know, I would add, right? The, the scale of the face-to-face encounter, as it were. Mm, right. If everything is distanced, you wouldn't even notice that person at all. And, and in this time... If it's just an avatar that I'm engaging with. I don't see it as an excuse, right? As a human being that you're harassing or threatening or being vile towards. But I think that the distance in some respects may makes it easier. It invites that behavior, right? In a, in a unique way. It's a loss of intimacy. That's right. And it's back to this question of respecting our embodiment, essentially, right? I mean, this is great. I'm, I'm glad that we're talking at a distance. We wouldn't have this ability to do this, right, apart from the tools that we're using. And like I mentioned, I think that even though I've kind of written about how, you know, Zoom is inadequate and some of the problems with it, you know, the fact that I can see you as I'm talking here, that's valuable. Now, if there were 50 little screens, obviously, uh, to, to keep track of, we lose that, but at the scale this works, and that's fine. But at the same time, you know, I'd love to be sitting across the table from you, right? That would be a closer approximation of an ideal, right? And that I think was very important to Illich. He spent a lot of his life convening groups of friends that would spend time just talking, discussing, conversing, eating, 
drinking together. And, and that was a, a foundational practice. I was thinking about how Polani's thought kind of correlate. At the outset, the importance of tradition, meaning the importance of authority, mm-hmm. kind of seems like it's opposed to this idea of less institutions, no experts. But he was critiquing a specific part of it. Polani emphasizes the importance of mentorship, the martial arts aspect. And I don't think that's the same thing as teaching where you say a bunch of stuff and they get it. You have to like live with them. That is a lot more communal. So that's where I feel like they could be complementary. They they definitely are. In fact, towards the tail end of de-schooling, Illich writes explicitly about that master-teacher relationship. Right? He, he recognizes that that is essential, but that those things should be entered into you don't require an institution to enter into that and that you pursue that relationship. And and it does certainly involve, as you say, a kind of submission to authority, right? The the master practitioner invites you into a relationship where where you can't just sit there and say, well, no, that's not the way it's done, right? There's a, a sense in which you're submitting to them. And that relationship was very special, that kind of master pupil relationship, I think, the language that he uses. So I think on, on that score, you would find a great affinity. I think Illich would recognize, as Polanyi does, that some of the most important kind of learning, especially with regards to certain skills, can only happen in the context of that relationship. And then that relationship itself becomes a a kind of friendship in in mutual pursuit towards some greater good. I I was listening to Mikado Fujimara, I think I pronounced his last name correctly, the visual artist talking about this very specific kind of art that he has learned through long hours of apprenticeship to a Japanese master and how they now have this, you know, very close relationship, right? There's a bond that has been formed there, right? And and so you're back at this ideal of friendship undergirding so much of our human relationships. A lot of times creating something with a friend builds a very specific kind of relationship versus just like just chatting or something, right? Right. There's a depth uh, of experience. And it's hard to articulate some of this stuff, right? But it's the sort of thing where if you've been through that, you understand it, right? It is tacit, right? It's a kind of tacit knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's experiential, difficult to articulate, but you know that it's there and it's substantial and it has added a, a, a depth to your relationship that you wouldn't have had otherwise. I think Polani would describe that as it's real, which is an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. That indescribable feeling. What I would say is like, it's like potential, right? It's so funny. He uses this like fancy phrase, indeterminate future possibilities mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. which to me, all that means is like when you learn something new, it expands how you think about the world right. in a positive way. Yeah. I don't know. It's a hopeful view of knowledge and, and learning, right? Yeah. It opens up more of the world to you, right? You can tell me if this tracks uh, with kind of this line of thought, but I, I think of listening to the late Richard Wilbur, an American poet, who was talking about the value of language in terms of naming and recognizing reality, right? So, you know, I grew up in the city. I grew up in Miami, and uh, there were trees, right? That's it. That, that was my category, right? For, for tall, green things, there were trees. I couldn't distinguish between an oak and a maple or any other number of trees that we might encounter they were simply trees, right? And birds were a category, right? The cardinals stood out, but beyond that, right, I couldn't identify the robin and the mockingbird and all that. But once you you learn to name those aspects, it's not just that you, you know, can show off and say, oh, look, you know, that's a sparrow and, and that's this particular kind of tree. It's actually that you see them, 
in, in a new way, right? Or, or, yeah. or you just see them, period, right? This is a remarkable thing, right? Yeah. That they appear to you in a way that they wouldn't have simply because you have learned to name them and to recognize them. And so in that sense, you know, they become real to you. You have an access to reality. Of course, it was always there before you. Right. But the kind of creatures that we are, to simply look at the world is not to see it. And so we need to learn to see. And part of that, I think, involves the, the learning to name the world. I think that's exactly his thinking. Knowing itself is a skill that you have mm-hmm. to develop. Mm-hmm. And, and this relates to this idea of personal knowledge, right? If um, that's true, then the person is so important to the act of knowledge. And yes. not trying to distance ourselves. And we've been talking a lot about distance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I think of that idea of the personal dimension of knowledge, part of where my mind goes is this Augustinian view that you have to be prepared for cert- to, re- to receive to certain kinds of knowledge, right? But to come back to the idea of attention, right? Your capacity for attention, your willingness in humility to attend to the world, right? To see what is there, right? To acknowledge your ignorance in order to, to be prepared to receive the knowledge that, that is there for you. These are all sort of traits of the human being. Even the question of seeing, when I talk about the difference between just looking and seeing, maybe even in which uh, you know, technological practices sort of shape the way we think about these things. Our minds are not cameras, right, that just kind of click the world, right, and, and sort of everything that is there to be seen is, is perceived by our minds, right? And our perception is intended, right? We direct it. We have to be trained to perceive certain facets of reality. We have to submit ourselves to the patient work of attending to certain realities in order to allow them to emerge fully before our intellect. And these all, I think, do reflect this question of the the person, right? Have we become the sort of person that is able to receive the particular kind of knowledge that we're, that, that is in view here? I think that gets into this fancy term he uses to explain knowledge, subsidiary and focal integration. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of fancy words, but subsidiary is the environment. It's the, the things in your periphery. And then focal is the thing that you're mm-hmm. putting your attention on. So I thought that tacit knowledge would mean like implicit versus explicit, but it's the integration of both of those things together. So piano is like a really simple example of like, I'm playing the notes. My body has learned to play the piano, right? And I can focus on the piece, the actual music itself. The subsidiary is like the notes that we're playing. But if I start focusing on the notes, then I won't be able to concentrate on the music itself and then probably start playing badly. Right, right. It, it seems to me like a common feature of most kinds of uh, what we might think of as an embodied knowledge, right? So if you're touch typing, this is the thing about being in the flow, right? You can enter a certain state where you're expertly typing you're almost not thinking. To think about the keys would be to interrupt the process, right? Even as an athlete, right, if you become too conscious of your free throw technique, it it throws it off, right? There's this balance to be struck there that I think is is the balance between um, kind of using those clues, as it were, to suspend the, the activity, right? But if you focus too much on them, then kind of derails the work itself. Yeah. I guess his point is that we're always doing both. Anytime you shift your focus, you're always relying on other clues. And so it's always going back and forth. And, and you were the one that pointed me to C.S. Lewis's essay, right? Uh, Meditations in the Toolshed. Right. There are two different ways of perceiving as the outside observer or the participant within. 
And I think Lewis would say both are legitimate, both have their, their place. All of them kind of get, all these different concepts get at that same notion of balancing our attention, attending that is both active and receptive simultaneously. Yeah. In order to learn, you have to surrender to something. Right. Um, like what you said, when you're learning from a master, every time they tell you to do something, you can't tell yourself, I have to question every single thing he says. But in order to evaluate something to be critical, you do have to just go through it. And so you are doing both at the same time. Yeah. Even if I test a product, I have to evaluate, oh, was this even good? Mm -hmm. I could, you could say services, products, institutions, algorithms, they make us not willing to make that choice anymore. The personal choice of some kind of discernment into like whether something is good because someone else is telling us that it is good objectively. Yes, that's really good. Actually, that, that one of the things that I was going to draw on in the newsletter was uh, the uh, novelist uh, Walker Percy has an essay called that The Surrender of Our Experience, I think is the title of it. But that's mm -hmm. sort of the theme, right? We surrender our experience to another class of people, experts, in large part, I think, come in to do this work for us, or even pervasive media images. And so the illustration Percy uses in this little essay is how it's very hard to see the Grand Canyon today. Right? And what he means by that is that if you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't just go to see the Grand Canyon. You go to see the Grand Canyon in light of all of the images you've already perceived about it, all of the things you've been told about what you will feel when you see the Grand Canyon, right? It's all been kind of scripted in a sense for you. And he ends up saying, you know, really the only way to see the Grand Canyon is to just stumble upon it. You know, if you happen to get off of sort of the prescribed tourist path to the Grand Canyon and are surprised mm -hmm. by it, he says, then you'll see it. But until then, you're, you're not going to see it, it you know, see it in, in, in air quotes, uh, perceive it for what it is, because it's already been prepackaged for you, in this case, by all of the, you know, the image and the tourist paraphernalia and all of that. But he would say experts would do the same thing for us. We've surrendered our ability to independently experience the world to various classes of experts and to the media writ large, in a sense, that have hmm. overdetermined right? What the reality is going to be or what it is. I guess you could argue that there was never a time you could really experience it for yourself because you're always influenced by other people. But I think the, the key word is over where it's like so much so you don't even feel like you have any sense of self thinking around that idea. Yeah, I guess the word I'm thinking of is like serendipity then, right? It's like stumbling upon something that you weren't intending to you have a goal of certain things, but you weren't thinking of that specific thing. Right, right. And I think that it, that kind of describes Percy's description of how you kind of actually get to see the canyons, but you serendipitously sort of come upon it before you realize it. It reminds me of being in Florence and knowing that I'm working my way towards Il Domo, the famous, you know, orange brick building that you see in all the pictures of Florence, right? It's a cathedral and has a tower next to it. And, but the streets are so narrow and, and it's a huge building, but you don't see it until you, well, in my case, turn a corner and, and there it is, you know, right before you. And it does, it, it catches you off guard. And, and at least, you know, it, it was a great experience for me, right? That kind of, I know I'm going here to see this, but at that moment, I wasn't ready to see it. And so it, it struck me in a unique way. Okay, awesome. Everyone should check out the newsletter <laughs> whenever that comes out. Yeah, it was good talking to you.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at leftpad or naiafia or on our website, h